Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again, we'll continue reading from Isaiah chapter 3. And it says this, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counsellor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. And they'll make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbour. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honourable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it should be well with them, for they shall eat the fruits of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the amulets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and her handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness, and instead of belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gate shall lament and mourn. Empty shall she, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. 
Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honour of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole city of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his, his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now are inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judged between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why it did yield? Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he look for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, or see the works of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite, and opened its mouth beyond measure. When the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revellers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, 
and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his, his, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistles for them to the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, or their bows bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its cloud. Well, we're going to have a quick look at some of that passage uh, in a moment, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. As soon as we finish the sermon, service, no sermon, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions in light of the things we've been thinking about this morning. So I do mention that now so you can be aware of it and be thinking what questions you might like to ask. The other thing to mention is you have a sermon outline in your service sheet, um, which you can, might be helpful for you, uh, but obviously you don't need to use that. And finally, and most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the words recorded uh, so many years ago by your servant Isaiah. We thank you for his boldness in passing on your message to the people. As we reflect on these things now, we thank you that they are relevant to us because you are the creator and you're consistent and your world is also consistent. So that what we read now is still relevant to us today. Amen. Well, in his book, Snuff, Terry Pratchett writes, Goodness is about what you do, not who you pray to. It's an interesting idea. Goodness is not about serving a God or the God. Goodness is something that can be practiced completely independently of him. Whether or not you choose to pray to a God has no ethical implications. What matters is what you do. So presumably, you can pray to a God and be bad, and you can pray to a God and be good. 
while you can pray to know God at all and be bad, or pray to know God at all and be good. There's a similar sentiment with those who describe Jesus as a great ethical teacher. We can take aspects of Jesus' advice, and if we adopt those good and wholesome bits of advice, we will be good because he has some good suggestions on how to live. Although we do that while rejecting his own claim that he has he was the Son of God. Now in this scenario, there is someone who isn't being all that good. Either Jesus, after all he's lying about being who he is, or those who propose him to be a good teacher as they reject his boldest claim that he's the Son of God. Furthermore, it isn't impossible to find a similar idea within the book of Isaiah. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 23. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not, does not come to them. What we have here is a very clear explanation of what it looks like to be good. Don't take bribes. Rather bring justice to the weak within society. And so with Terry Pratchett we might agree. Goodness isn't about who you pray to. But it does include bringing justice to those who are susceptible to abuse. And we could continue this exercise. We could pick out parts of Isaiah and isolate them. And in doing so, paint a picture of what it looks like to be good. And be good while completely ignorant of God. But what would the outcome be? Would we or could we truly get to the essence of what it is to be good? Or as we delve in deeper into the book of Isaiah, will we discover that any attempt at goodness while remaining ignorant of God actually is no good at all? In fact, I propose that the part of the message of the Isaiah actually argues for the complete counter view to Terry Pratchett. And we can see that as early as verse chapter 1, verse 2 which says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Before Isaiah says anything else, he begins by calling the whole of creation to witness what has happened. God raised up Israel, his firstborn, and these children defy him. Israel is a disobedient son. Now at this point we might say, well yes, Israel's goodness does depend upon serving God. They were God's people. But what of the rest of the world? Well Isaiah is going to engage with that question as well. So when we get to chapters 13 to 23... 
individual nations will be condemned until we reach chapter 4, when the whole earth is judged by God. And this is precisely because goodness has everything to do with who we pray to or who we serve. Since God is the creator, who has created everything without exception, including humans, and humans have been given his image to reflect his glory, so that God knows what goodness is, and the only way we can reflect or we can begin to have any grasp of goodness is to listen to him. And so the greatest evil is to attribute his glory to another and deny that he exists at all. The first question of goodness has to be, do you serve the creator, the one who's given us life, the one who sustains us, the one who's made us to reflect his character? And this is precisely where the people of Israel have failed. In verse 3, they're compared to a donkey. Animals are obedient. Once they are trained, they dutifully follow their masters. But Israel, despite all that God has done for them, bringing them out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness, bringing them to the promised land, they fail to know the God who has rescued them and has done mighty things on their behalf. And so Israel has become God's enemies. You can see this in verse 24 of chapter 1. Therefore the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. God will take vengeance upon his enemies. Then verse 25 is striking. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. God appears to be about to destroy Israel. But then have a look at verse 26. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards you shall be called the city of righteousness the faithful city. Verse 26 causes us to look again. God's intention isn't to destroy Israel. God's intention is to restore Israel. He doesn't wish to bring an end to his people. He wishes to purify them so that they would be good because being good begins with knowing the Creator, the very thing that Israel has failed to do. Now the reason Israel is so important to God, and the reason he will not destroy them, but restore them, is because Israel is his chosen instrument to bring salvation to the nations. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 provides some respite from God's judgment on his people. This section looks forward to a day when God's people will be restored. Instead of being his enemies, now they will reflect his glory, as they were always meant to do. 
So much so that the other nations see what God's people are like. Which means they make the journey so they can be taught about God and taught by God. Having seen what it's like when Israel serves God, the nations will come because they wish to serve God too. Once again, we see how goodness is tied to serving God. While the people do not, um, people of Israel do not serve God, they live in the land of injustice. And the nations do not wish to serve their God either. But when Israel does serve God, the nations come and seek out God because of the attractiveness of both the people and the God that they serve. But this situation is still a long way off. And for now, Isaiah returns to his message of judgment or restoration. And as we've seen, the restoration will mean purification. Throughout the Bible, one of the things that we've noticed is that God gives his people what they want. God is generous and he gives to his people all that they need. But that isn't quite what we're considering here. Here we're thinking how God gives the people what they desire. And more often than not, what his people desire isn't good. God gives people over to their sin. And when we come to Isaiah chapter 3, we see that since they do not want God as their leader, then we can presume they don't want any leader at all. And so this is what God does in chapter 3. He removes all authority from Israel. He takes away the captains of the soldiers. He takes away the rulers. He takes away the counsellors. He removes all authority. To the point that there's only boys left. And it's boys that become the rulers. It's an environment where there'll be utter chaos as the people turn to anyone with the slightest sign of authority. And they'll be made rulers. Even as some, something as simple as owning a cloak will earn you a nomination. But they won't want to leave the city. After all, the city has now been reduced to rubble. But then we come to chapter 4. And once again, the hope that God will not abandon Israel. Rather, the, this whole experience of judgment upon his people is intended to make his people what he always wanted them to be. Chapter 4 describes the city now as a holy, holy as God is. And the imagery that is used harks back to a time before when God protected his people and kept them from any harm. But this is only going to be achieved once the people have been purified. This is a picture of a holy people serving a holy God. But the people Isaiah is presently speaking to cannot be described as holy at all. First, they must be purified. 
Now as we come to Isaiah 5, once again an imagery is used to describe the relationship between God and Israel, and Israel's failure to be good. Verse 7 is the key to understanding the imagery. We see here that God is the vineyard owner, and Israel is the vineyard. The owner is cares for his vineyard, but the fruit that the vineyard produces is just no good. Once again, it's verse 7 that makes the connection between the bad fruit and the bad behaviour is people, Israel. And so because of the lack of good fruit, the vineyard will be destroyed. Now later on when we get to John's Gospel, in John 15, Jesus picks up this same imagery. It's ever so slightly different. Once again, God is the owner of the vineyard. But this time it's Jesus who is the vine. Now, in this situation, the people are the branches of the vine. So God's still the vineyard owner, Jesus is the vine, and the people are the branches of the vine. And Jesus makes a number of observations. Some branches, well, they don't bear fruit, so they're removed straight away. Some branches, they do bear fruit, but in order to continue to bear fruit, they will need to be pruned. Crucial to all of this is the branch is unable to bear fruit unless it's attached to the vine. And so Jesus concludes, in order to bear fruit, you must remain with me. This brings us right back to the beginning of our sermon. We may hold a high regard for Jesus and his ethical teachings, but that isn't enough. We cannot learn to be good by picking some of the acceptable things that Jesus said and doing them. Jesus calls for our full dependence upon him. Only if we depend upon him can we be good. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of Isaiah 1-5. We thank you as we reflect on the severe language that Isaiah uses against your people because of their rebellion against you. We thank you that throughout this we continue to see a glimmer of hope as that you're about to purify your people, not destroy them, in order to prepare them for a future where they will be holy and that all people will see their holiness and come to learn about you. We thank you how this has been fulfilled through your Son, 
how he came and he brought people from other nations into your people. So that now we live in a time when this has been fulfilled. As people hear your gospel, the salvation that's available, and come and repent for the forgiveness of their sins. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier that we would have questions at the end of the sermon. That point's now arrived. We normally get time for about two or three questions. So any questions in light of what we're going to think about this morning? Yes, Nikki. Chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, good question. Okay, so just repeating the recording. So in verse 18 it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. What does that mean? So I guess, are you getting at the idea that it seems a little bit odd for God to be like, oh, let's have a little conversation, let's engage, you know, your opinion is as valid as my opinion, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yes, so I think as in a contemporary context, I think that's how we would read it and think, you know, when you say to someone, oh, let's have a, well, you don't really say let's reason together, but you would say, oh, let's, everyone's got valid opinions here, let's share those valid opinions, you know, you're, we, we don't really have this, uh, or shouldn't really have this view of God as being in that situation. As we've alluded to during the sermon, um, God is the creator. Before we even existed, he knew everything exhaustively. When he creates us, he creates us and knows us exhaustively as well. And so when he then says to us... Um, what to do, then, well, we know his advice, and or advice, we know that his commands are good because he knows everything exhaustively, so he knows the implications of everything, every possibility. So here, when it says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, it can't mean everyone's got valid opinions, let's share those valid opinions. So rather here, I think it's more in a sort of a more traditional sense of um, let me rationalise what's about to happen. Um, so I think I think it's more that sort of idea of uh, let it be presented of the direction things are going to go. Interestingly, in three, it says dispute, come now let us, sorry, in footnote three, come now let us dispute together, says the Lord. I mean, I guess the other thing to think about is if God does put us in a position and say, come on then, let's have a dispute, at which point 
whoever he's referring to should probably say, uh, no, thank you. Uh, I think I will listen to what you have to say in the wisdom of you. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the direction we want to be heading in. Yes, Caroline. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good. So, just to repeat for the recording. So, as we continue to read on after what he says, so come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they should become like wool. It's very matter of fact. It's not um, an open invitation for a reply. Yeah. Excellent. Any other questions? Wow. Um, we'll start with Josh. Um, sure. I was just thinking, think about this in terms of like engaging people with this question. I guess what I'm thinking is, I see before the idea by trusting in God, but I see that's not that's not on the view in our culture is many people who believe that you know I'm a good person, I've done this, I've done that, that is the kind of question there, the kind of objectivity of someone being a good person would be quite like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good question. Let me just repeat it for the recording. So we've been arguing that the only way you can be good is um, by serving the Creator. Of course, that's not most people's opinions. Most people do think they are good. Um, so can we use this conversation? How could we encroach this conversation? Because it's quite an aggressive uh, conversation to have. Can we use it? Um, in conversation with others, in discussing goodness. Yes. Well, I think, I guess, one thing might be the direction in which we go. So I guess, oh, okay, maybe helpful thing. One thing we've talked about in the past is... <clears throat> Um, how you relate to other people. So how we relate to other people, um, one thing we don't do is say, oh, um, I've got a friend and I like to think of him as, you know, I don't know, oh, I'm trying to think, I'm trying not to use Caroline because I don't use Caroline, it's not very fair. <laughs> if, you, if you think, okay, I'll use Caroline because uh, it's an easier one. So if I say, oh, I like to think of my wife as being six foot, dark hair, and whatever else, um, all of you will be thinking, but that's not Caroline. That's not what Caroline looks like. Uh, 
and, and all that sort of thing. And obviously, if Caroline found out that's what I like to think of Caroline as being, she'd be quite upset um, because that's clearly not what she's like at all. Now, there's other things as well. If I say, oh, I like to think of Caroline as being really into football, you think, well, I don't. She doesn't seem to enjoy football. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to d decide what she looks like and what she thinks and what she enjoys, but actually just doesn't fit with the, the real person. The alternative is to get to know the person who... Um, is there. So in order to get to know my wife, I need to let her reveal herself to me. She needs to tell me about herself. And I need to take that information on board. And as I do that, I'll get to know that she likes playing the piano, and she likes doing this, she likes doing that. She's got blonde hair, and she's not quite six foot. She's just shy of six foot. About five foot, five foot eleven, I think. Um, so Having a relationship is about relating to the person who presents themselves to you and allowing them to reveal themselves to you. Now, what's interesting with God is that no one plays that game. Everyone likes to think of God as being, you know, I like to think of there is something out there and he's not like any of these gods that people talk about, but there's something out there. When you're kind of like, well, hang on a minute. If there are people who say that, or there is holy books that say that this is what God is like, at least you've got to start there. You can't suddenly say that this is what God is like because I think it. Um, and so to kind of cut to the chase, the question here becomes, if our own relationships with one another, we wouldn't like it if people said, I like to think of God as an imagined them and wouldn't want them to reveal wouldn't let them reveal themselves to us. Why do we think God would be like that? Um, and so I, I think that might be a slightly less aggressive way of approaching the idea that how we engage with God is we say, Well, I decide what God's going to be like. But actually, we need to we need to listen to find out what God says he's like and let himself reveal himself to us. And particularly when we find out that he's the creator who provides us with our life, all of a sudden then it's like, well, actually, he deserves our worship. He deserves our respect. He deserves us to pay attention to him because he gives us our life and breath and our wisdom and all that we have. Um, so I think once you've got that foundation, then you can start to think, if he is the one who brings us into existence, then he's the better place to decide what's good and what's not good. And actually, starting with obeying him, if we're not obeying him, then we're getting up to all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I think, I think that's probably... Because I think it would come in from a slightly different angle in that scenario, and therefore, I mean, I'm sure people will take it the wrong way as well, but hopefully it's not quite as aggressive. You were kind of, sorry, just uh, to, when you talked about earlier, kind of like, you know, we can take the sound bites from this, we can take, we can take this version here, we can take this version here, and then build our own, by doing that, you know, like build a picture of yeah, possibly. I mean, one one of the other things we can say is that I like to think of God as not existing. 
that's so um, you know when and this is the thing with Jesus the Jesus example was um, oh yeah Jesus is a great ethical teacher well Jesus doesn't confess profess to be a great ethical teacher so we've not listened to him Jesus professes to be the son of God uh, he professes to come to lay down his life for his people so if you think he's an ethical teacher you're not listening to what he's saying it's just it's just not on you know we don't if, if you want to know someone, you've got to listen to what they're going to say. So if you're saying he's a great ethical teacher, then you've dismissed him. Um, right, we had quite a few questions, but I've taken quite a long time with them, and it is sweltering in here. Um, should we, are you happy for us to hold off those questions, and you can come and catch me at the end? Cool. Let's keep this moving, otherwise we're all going to melt.